This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Lotox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 189. I hope you enjoyed and uh, always enjoy our beautiful intro tune. It's from an independent Australian artist, Melanie Horsnell. That's H-O-R-S-N-E-L-L. And you can pop to her website through a quick Google or Ecosia search if you want to plant trees while you search the internet and uh, download her albums. They're like 10 bucks. Incredible artist. She's been writing songs for more than two decades now. And I remember a little piece of trivia about my life is that a couple of, uh, gosh, two decades ago myself, I think, was it? Yeah, it really was that long ago. I uh, spent a couple of years singing jazz in nightclubs and bars and then found a songwriting partner and we wrote a bunch of songs together more in the folk uh, jazz space and uh, ended up performing in pubs with Mel and that's how we met and became friends and I've loved, loved, loved her music ever since. Uh, It's been amazing to see people that I performed with at that time like Wes Carr and Lior go on to do incredible things in Australian music as has uh, Mel. So please do go and support uh, her music if you love our intro tune and grab yourself a copy of uh, the album. I have all the details in the show notes. Anyway, little tangent. I'm really excited about today's show. We have Dr. David Rabin, MD in uh, medicine and PhD in neuroscience. And I asked him about why he felt thirsty for both qualifications uh, rather than strictly specializing in one area. And we're talking about improved methods for chronic stress and mental illness challenges today. So uh, it's a fascinating discussion. He is at the forefront of uh, research in the area of chronic stress. He's been studying it for 15 years and he's also an entrepreneur who's created a very cool device uh, that has some incredible research behind it in terms of the results it's getting for uh, people who very quickly jump into fight or flight and freeze levels Um Uh, people with PTSD as well, and I will not say any more on that subject. You're just going to have to listen to the show. It sounds very cool. I checked it out on the website and uh, it's it's an amazing tool. So um, David has specifically focused his research on the clinical translation of non-invasive therapies that improve mood, focus, sleep and quality of life in treatment-resistant illnesses. So as a psychiatrist, he's like, why is this person not getting better? And instead of stopping there and going, oh, well, I guess that's one of the people who just doesn't respond to any of the treatments, he relentlessly uh, searches for researches, studies and improves 
patient outcomes with uh, non-invasive therapies. We talk about everything from music to therapeutic touch, biofeedback, yoga. We talk about uh, psychedelics today in used in clinical context. Uh, it's a very exciting look at all of the research that is currently being done uh, and uh, implemented in trials. Um, I'm very excited by it. Uh, so um, something else that I was extremely excited about when I was looking into Dr. Rabin's career is that he is the founder and executive director of something called the Board of Medicine. It's a 501c3 nonprofit charity, and it's focused on improving the safety and effectiveness of medication-based treatments for patients and healthcare providers. Uh, and I think this is fantastic. And boy, do we need a lot more nonprofit in the area of science and medicine because when no one has a financial gain to make, it's much easier to see the truth straight away. Uh, and uh, I'm, I'm very excited to see where this goes. So the Board of Medicine uses uh, guidelines. Um, they have a team of, he's sort of built and led a team of physicians and scientists to spearhead the development of the world's first evidence-based peer-reviewed clinical guidelines for the safe use of medical cannabis and other unregulated complementary and alternative medicines. And I'm particularly excited about this because unregulated and complementary alternative medicines often end up um, in a self-diagnosis, self-treatment, self-exploration uh, setting because of the lack of research and affordability. People are really kind of shooting around in the dark and this is going to make complementary alternative medicine even safer, medical cannabis even more uh, clear as to how it's helpful, why and for whom and in what setting. Uh, and they use the guidelines to train and certify healthcare providers and industry partners, as well as to provide quality control standards for natural and prescription medicines to support community goals. So there's a lot going on for David. Uh, he is a busy individual but not stressed. <laughs> uh, and uh, look out for the name Apollo in our conversation today because that is the name of this nifty wearable tech uh, that he has developed uh, to support people who are treatment resistant, uh, especially in the area of um, PTSD. So if you know someone who struggles with mental illness, mental challenges, please share this show. I'm really excited by the work that David's doing and his colleagues on the Board of Medicine. And I think uh, it's an important word to get out there. So enjoy that conversation. And just before I hook into that, I want to thank everybody who joined the Low Tox Club this week. It's wonderful to see our new members. It's only $49 Australian for the whole year, $30 US, that makes it, or about 28 euro. 
and uh, you get a ton of perks. All the details are on the show notes today. You just click through. And the way you find the show notes, if you ever want to look up a guest and uh, find out a little bit more about them, uh, where we share all their links or where we share the sponsor offers when we have one, is lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. And then you just click on the show's tile and then you get all the information that I said. You'll find that in the show notes. You'll see it there. It's really, really easy to find. Um, and uh, we've got some pretty exciting things coming up in the Lotox Club uh, in the next couple of weeks. I'm doing a Q&A with the wonderful Dr. Jocelyn Brewer on screen time, blue light, uh, eff- effectively reframing screen time as a potentially nourishing activity and how to distinguish the line between nourishing and destructive Um, And then I'll be talking about blue light and we're doing that live in the club as a webinar tomorrow so that people can ask questions. Uh, So we do things like that. You get 50% off all of our courses except for Thrive and Low Tox Method Business Coaching Program. Uh, but um, our 10 other courses you do and we have this beautiful online portal and you just click on the month when you join and it has all of your club perks in their ebook, the little boost that we do in the group um, around whatever the theme is that month, a whole bunch of extra resources that you guys get for being in the club. So I would love for you to join me over there and you can do that at lotoxlife.com forward slash podcast and click on today's show or just hit the explore tab and join the club is the very first option uh, on the website. I will see you there and I will see you after this conversation online to hear what you thought about it and whether you had any ahas. Enjoy this interview with Dr. David Rabin as much as I enjoyed this conversation. Hello, Dave. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you, Alex? I'm really well. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you here. The work you do is so fascinating and you're not even focused in one teeny tiny niche. You're everywhere when it comes to neuroscience and psychiatry. And uh, and I'm fascinated. I think a great place for us to start would be to ask you which came first, psychiatry or neuroscience, and what kind of drew you to the other? What made you think you needed more? Uh, that's a great question because I think at first um, I also did not think that I needed uh, more <laughs> because the school is quite a, you know it's a lot of it was a lot of school and there's no. Uh, there's, there's no uh, sugarcoating it really. And, and it was, and I, and I am also, I think a lot of people think like, oh, well, some people just love school. And I was not one of those people. Um, I did not enjoy school and I did not enjoy um, being, you know, rigorously trained under intense authority. Um, and so it was a big challenge for me, but I think a, the major motivator for me was that I had some really powerful and meaningful experiences growing up where um I did some summer summers away at different research institutions, one of which was at uh, University of California, San Francisco, and another one, which was, I think, after my first year of high school, or sorry, first year of college. And then I did another one, I did it, my first one before that at Rockefeller University in New York, um, which was a summer to kind of, you know, get high school students interested in research and see, like, if you are actually interested in this, is this something that you want to pursue long term? And I was working with a lot of people who either were MDs, PhDs, and then the number of people who had both. 
And I never, at that point, up until that point in my life, I had never conceived of ever getting both um, degrees. But what I realized when I was working with these people was that the people who had the MD in medical, a medical doctorate in clinical science, who were experts at seeing patients, were not always that great at conducting research studies. And people who were great at conducting research studies with the PhD did not have the clinical framework of seeing patients to ground them in, you know, is this research that I'm working on actually something that's going to impact patient care? Right. And I think that, you know, going back, you know, if we go back like 30 or 40 years or a little further, all doctors and medical doctors were trained in clinical research as well. And, and a lot of, a lot of research background was there. And so it was a different time. And I kind of expected that was something that I would experience as well, but it wasn't the case. And I realized that when I was interacting with these people that they just had a much broader understanding of biology and, you know, the, bi the, the biology all the way down to the cells and the DNA and then all the way up through um, the, the, the organ systems and the brain and then the actual way that these symptoms express themselves. And, and it was just a much more complete understanding of, of the human body and the human and the mind and the body together. And so that really drove me uh, into that direction. And I think there was one pivotal moment when I was at University of California, San Francisco, where I was working with a, a neurologist um, who, uh, uh, Dr. Seeley, and he um, had, we, we were in the lab one day doing work on prions, actually. It was the, uh, it was a Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which was a very scary thing at the time. Bad cow disease was in its full throes, and people were really talking about how this could be an epidemic uh, in a different level to what we are seeing now. And we were dissecting a human brain in the lab, and it was a human brain of one of his patients. And it was so incredible to be able to have the opportunity, not just to be able to do work on someone else's brain after they died, but to do work on somebody who he had taken care of clinically and he knew what this person looked like and he knew what they were struggling with firsthand. Um, and so it gave him a completely you know, deep understanding of what was going on and what he was looking for that was a very different perspective than what I saw from the just people who were just practicing science without the clinical framework. And yeah. so I think that just throttled me in from there. Yeah, it's like having a, an in-depth starting point for dissection. Normally you dissect something and you're curious about the unknown, but this is starting from the known and seeing how right. much deeper you can go. Right. Yeah, wow. And, and so I kind of, I took, I took a slightly different path in that I, I kind of studied both the MD and the PhD simultaneously because I, I was in a research training program. So I, luckily some of these programs have existed for, in the States at least for about maybe 40 years or so. Um, and so I applied out of high school into a program where I trained in, um, I started doing research as an undergraduate, and then I continued that research into medical school. And then while I was there, the person I was doing research with was like, hey, do you want to stay and do a PhD? And then I thought back to my previous experiences and I said, well, yeah, why not? This is something that I <laughs> is really aligned with what I want out of my life. And so yeah. that ended up being my path, but it was kind of, I did everything kind of simultaneously. Yeah, absolutely. And did you ever do one-on-one -on -one practice like just in sure. rooms and and so during that time what were you seeing that you felt like the science wasn't being helpful enough with because there must have been gaps that started to emerge for you that led you to go on to do what you've done since that time yeah absolutely i i think that um again both sides have gaps you know i think that that you know, in medical school, I realized that a lot of the doctors I was working with didn't often ask, why are we doing it this way? Or how does this work? Um, they would, they would, we would learn and we were taught, you know, by the book, this is how it's been done. This is the way this system 
it works from our understanding to date, um, but it stopped there. It didn't continue to go deeper. The inquiry kind of ended. And then the scientists would pick up and say, oh, well, how does this work all the way down to the cells? What questions are still out there that we're not answering, right? Or that are kind of left unanswered. And what does this condition that I'm working on right now have to do with all these other conditions that appear similar, but might actually be different, or maybe they're actually more similar than we think. And so it started this process of, I think particularly in mental illness, which is really interesting for me because, um, and I have worked with patients quite a bit one-on-one and I still do today. And a big part of that is understanding, you know, when we look at PTSD, depression, anxiety, if what just from the medical perspective, we see these disorders and then we have a book called the Diagnostic Manual or uh, the DSM. And then this book has guidelines for treatment and most psychiatrists prescribe and treat patients within those guidelines instead of taking a step which which unfortunately which which is good for some things the guidelines are important at the same time you know in the case of post-traumatic stress disorder ptsd there's probably over 50 percent of people who do not respond to the recommended guidelines right and you can try many many times with them but over 50 percent are non-responders or they don't respond well enough that they are receiving adequate relief and so I started asking myself and, and my colleagues and my patients, you know, like, why are some people not responding and other people responding? What do these patients have in common with people with depression who aren't responding and people with anxiety that aren't responding? And I realized that when I started to ask these questions, what was coming back to me was that the single origin of what was going on was not, it was not um, something you could treat symptomatically. It was something we needed to get to the root of. And that was where, again, Western medicine and the, and the medicine training alone kind of stopped because it was protocolized. It was just like, you see X, Y, and Z, and then you do A, B, and C, right? And that is the method. It was like, we were factory workers in a lot of ways on the medical side, but then the scientist side said, wait a minute, maybe this isn't working. So let's try something else and let's explore other opportunities for recovery and healing that are well-founded in science, but maybe not talked about in the book. Mm. Right. And it almost feels like we need the work that the scientists are doing and the med school textbook writers to do a heck of a lot more communicating so we can move forward. And it just feels like there's a big disconnect. I've, I've experienced it myself where you have test, 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 nothing we can do based on what we know now. So you've got to go find the people yourself who know more than what we know now in the textbooks uh, because they exist, but it really just takes someone understanding that those people exist and the average Joe unfortunately does not and takes things as a sentence. Oh, this is my lot in life. I guess I'm unlucky. I just have never taken no for an answer and I'm very glad that's the case because it's ended up helping me help others see that you don't have to take no for an answer necessarily. And I think that's really important part of the hope faith structure of healing as well. Yeah, I couldn't have said it better. I, I, sorry, you couldn't have said it better. The uh, hope structure is incredible, right? Like hope is one of the most critical foundations for healing. And I think when what we don't understand oftentimes in Western medicine is we're taught to diagnose somebody because this is important. But when you give somebody a diagnosis, particularly of a chronic illness, even if you're, especially when you're not certain of what's going on, you know, we think of that diagnosis as being important for the patient, but it's not. You know, the diagnosis is important for us as doctors and scientists to communicate with one another. But when you give a patient or a client a diagnosis of a treatment resistant or chronic illness, you're basically telling somebody that they're never going to get better. Right. And so you like rip that hope away from them 
and you, in a lot of ways, take away something that might have been their best shot at recovery. And so I think a big movement now in psychology and and um, in psychiatry is, you know, the science and where it's meeting with the science is really looking at the neuroscience of hope, right? And the neuroscience of belief that we can heal because we know that these things are real. We know that there's scientific evidence for it. And if you look at, you know, in Western medicine, we call it placebo, right? Placebo means the belief that you will get better, a belief that a treatment will work for you. And uh, nocebo is the opposite, right? Uh, nocebo means that you believe a treatment will not work for you and it's less likely to work. And it turns out that that's actually a substantial amount of the efficacy or lack thereof, right? It's up somewhere in mental health, somewhere between 30 and 50% of the effect or lack thereof is due to placebo or nocebo. Wow. That's a huge amount <laughs> of effect, right? Yeah. So that's why we now we now have a lot of um, you know evidence in the literature that it's very possible that you know a lot of antidepressants like SSRIs may not actually work that well for most people, and it may very well be placebo. And so, if that's the case, maybe we should try other things first. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that feels like a really good segue to start looking at our central nervous system, autonomic nervous system. Have a look at what we're dealing with. Um, in a bit of a 101, because I really like uh, making sure we cover the 101 for people who don't think, oh gosh, I'm not smart enough to understand what they're talking about in today's show. So we can take everybody along for the journey, because I think it's really, um, it's a gift once you get what you're dealing with in your nervous system. Uh, and then from there to kind of have a look at uh, some of the things that you've worked on that are really exciting um, in, in the work you do. Sure. And I, th I think, uh, you know, as you said, it is a gift to know, to understand these, this kind of thing. I think, you know, more than anything, uh, knowledge is power in this kind of um, situation. And I think the reason that is, is because even as a doctor, we're taught that these, that the nervous system, particularly what we're talking about called the autonomic nervous system, just works and works in the background. And it keeps our heart beating and it keeps our lungs breathing and it keeps our blood pumping through our vessels and, and keeps our immune system working. And all these things just happen in the background, digestion, reproduction. And for, for, to some extent, that's true, right? Our body, we don't have to consciously think about all these things to have them work. But to have them work the best they possibly can, they do benefit from a little attention. And the reason that is, is because the nervous system or what we're calling the autonomic nervous system, this part that works in the background is really split into, into two arms. So one arm is the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight or flight. And this arm is critical for survival responses. So anytime we are threatened with survival threat, like lack of air, lack of water, lack of food, or a predator around us, or lack of shelter, right? That's a critical moment where we want blood to be diverted away from reproduction, away from, from uh, <clears throat> digestion, away from um, things that are not critical to survival in that moment, so that it can go specifically to the muscles, the brain, the, the motor cortex of the brain, the parts that we need to fight or flight right? That's, that's why this is important. And that is the most effective way we can utilize resources to ensure our survival. But that being said, when we survive and we reach safety, then in that safe state, we want that stress response sympathetic system to de-escalate, decrease in activity. And then we want our parasympathetic or the recovery to system to increase in activity. And when that increases in activity, this in, as a result of safety, we want we we should see 
the increase in reproduction, digestion, immunity, creativity, um, uh, uh, empathy, all of these things that aren't necessarily the first things on our mind when we're in an immediate survival threat should kick on, which is responsible for a lot of the regulation of our bodies to make sure our bodies are working well. It's, it's the balance of thriving and surviving. Thriving happens when we're safe. Surviving happens when we are not safe. And so these systems balance each other out, right? They have to be, ideally we want them to be even, but a lot of the times, like right now, when we have a global pandemic threatening us all the time, right? Our, our stress response system tends to be much higher and our recovery response system tends to be much lower. And what happens is over time, we start to see the, the most common symptoms start to pop up of having a imbalance in our nervous system, which is poor sleep, um, poor ability to recover energy. We feel fatigued a lot of the time. Our, we have digestive upset or, or we have metabolic system issues where we gain weight in ways we are hoping not to. Um, and we crave foods and crave things that aren't necessarily that good for us to get instant relief from these feelings of stress or threat. Um, we are irritable with our friends and family. Um, we you know, lose sex drive. All of these things are... Dave, it sounds like you're basically outlining modern health issues. I mean, but, but, that, right, <laughs> but this is something that... We are we, all just too stressed, basically. Right. And, and yeah. that's, a, I mean, that's a really what it comes down to is that the system is not as complicated as we were taught. And I think if we, if we start to understand that this really comes down to just two things, stress and safety, right? Threat and safety, then when we work on techniques that help to remind us we're safe, then that helps to rebalance the system by, with things like deep breathing, soothing music, human touch, yoga, self-touch, um, uh, good, good balance exercise, good balance diet. Um, all of these kinds of things help rebalance the system very, very quickly and over time, and they build resilience. They build a sense of balance in our bodies that we call homeostasis that allows us to bounce back from stress more effectively and it makes it so that we are more let we're more resistant to succumbing to illness. Mm -hmm. Amazing. And so could this be why some of us uh, tend to be set off by the most minor of things if we don't have a good enough baseline of parasympathetic reliance mm -hmm. kind of thing? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Because the system, as you can imagine, right, when, when our stress response, and, and this system is a really interesting system because, um, I, and I talk about Eric Kandel a lot because he's one of my favorite scientists, and he won the Nobel Prize in 2002 for discovering the origins of learning and memory. And um, I, I, I like to sum up his, his work, although it's an incredible amount of work, and I highly recommend everybody check out his autobiography called In Search of Memory. Um, but he, his work is incredible because it sums up this concept that the way the nervous system works in the way we learn is actually no different than the way that 300 million year old ancient sea snails learn. And they only have three neurons and we have almost a hundred billion, right? And, but the reason we, and the way that that is, is practice makes perfect. So if we practice being stressed out and we practice responding to things in our environment or things in our lives with a threat response, whether that's an accurate threat response or an inaccurate threat response, we get really, really good at responding with that threat response. So our body basically becomes toned and practiced into an imbalanced state so that when threat comes, we're more likely to hyper-react in that imbalanced way, which pushes the stress response system higher and the recovery response system lower in those situations, whether they're safe or not, 
we are not as good at uh, judging those things. Um, but you can also practice the opposite. So if you practice gratitude, if you practice forgiveness, if you practice compassion, self-love, resilience training in yoga, deep breathing, all these different things, you can actually completely reverse that system. And animals don't practice those kinds of things, but they also have the ability to practice safety techniques as well. And so it trains, the, the, and this goes all the way down from the way that we feel and think to the way that our nerves are actually talking to each other. Because every time we engage in a threatening situation or that we perceive as threat, like, well, a really good one is traffic. Right, like getting stuck in traffic. We all hate it. Yeah. And if, if we react negatively in a stressed out way every time we get in traffic, then it you're becomes gonna easier. You're going to be stressed all the time. Right, you're going to yeah. be stressed all the time. And so that creates these positive feedback loops of associating traffic and fear or threat. And so it just makes, it just gets strong. The loop, the actual neural connections between our neurons, the synapses get stronger and stronger and stronger every time we practice that loop. So the idea is, and I think where the hope comes in, is that if we understand how this works, then we can literally reverse the practice and say, okay, instead of being angry that I'm stuck in traffic right now and getting all up in a, in a tizzy, you know, let's practice being grateful for the fact that I am here today and I am still alive and able to breathe and be, and be able to get through this, you know, without losing it. And, 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 and practice all the little things like being grateful for anger. You know, anger is an incredible thing that's hard to be grateful for because it is um, painful and uh, frustrating and so difficult to sit with. But when we're not grateful for it, we turn it inward on ourselves. And when we are grateful for it, it becomes one of the most powerful energies that we can direct into other things in our lives, like constructive outlets, exercise and, and you know, self-growth techniques. So it's just a, it's shifting that mindset is critical and it's something that we can all do and it's free. Yeah, amazing. And so then tell me with situations where the threat isn't just perceived, but it is actually real. Uh, some people have multiple chemical sensitivity. Uh, I'm unfortunately very sensitive to mold and mycotoxins. So my body often tells me that it's under threat before my brain gets to go, come on, let's calm down. Okay, let's go take some charcoal. Let's go do a meditation. Um, so it happens the other way around for me um, because I've done all that work on uh, relying on relaxation, you know, defaulting, sorry, um, to relaxation. I find it easier to then get my brain involved and calm the farm and uh, do what I know I need to do physically to remove the threat and then get back into my parasympathetic. That took me four years um, because I think the inflammation bucket was so full that I was just completely wired all the time and I couldn't figure it out for about six months and neither could any doctor. I used to get the, gosh, that's a bit of a mystery kind of thing. And, um, and so I largely had to figure it out for myself. Um, and so when it is a, when it's more than traffic, um, what do you feel are some of the most powerful things? And I feel like this leads us into some of the things you've developed to really, you know, for the PTSD people, for the people who have inflammatory conditions due to environmental toxins or um, uh, other biological reasons, uh, what have you found really helps those patients? So th that's a great question. If, before I get to that, would you mind if I asked you what has worked for you? Yeah, absolutely. 
Uh, so what worked for me was understanding biologically what was going on better so that I knew what I was dealing with and knew that I was actually dealing with it instead of stabbing around in the dark. Uh, that didn't help my sense of hope <laughs> at all. Um, so once I actually knew what I was dealing with and started to work with incredible doctors that knew how to then uh, help on the biological front, then I felt taken care of, even though there might not have been a difference right now, I felt that we were working on things and things were gonna get better. So I could actually just focus up here. And uh, interestingly for me, one of the best, most powerful things was discovering Joe Dispenza's work. So it's interesting that you were talking about the biology of belief and Bruce Lipton as well. And really just practicing in a meditative state, the feeling of feeling relaxed and joyful even though my reality absolutely sucked at the time and it really sucked. I was very unwell. Um, the, the act of believing I was well and, and feeling the joy of what that felt like kept inching my uh, hope game uh, further, further up and, um, and made me feel um, more relaxed and at least um, trusting that it wasn't going to be like this forever. And that was very important to my overall healing journey. So is it, is it fair to say that you, your body was reacting in a, and trained to react in a very stressful way and that you, you practice cognitively through strengthening your mind body connection, you practice cognitively retraining, right? So that, so that is the way that we actually are taught most of the time how to do this. And as you said, it took you four years or so to, to, get, to get through some of that or maybe yeah. a little... Yeah, I would say yeah. so. It was like this, the toughest muscle work ever, like, you know, diligence at the gym every day. And I feel like there's got to be a better, faster way to do that. For sure. But I, but I think it's important to, to talk about what you went yeah. through because your story is so similar to what most of us have experienced when we try to overcome the, some similar things to what you overcame. And I, I commend you for doing that work because that's incredibly difficult work. And the problem is that people who have PTSD or depression or anxiety disorders and any chronic illness in general um, of inflammation have a much harder time of making those kinds of changes than somebody who's already healthy, right? And, and it just takes so much work and it can take years or hundreds or even thousands of hours of practice to get to a point where we can really open up that ability to self-heal. And I'd imagine if you have a mental illness, like it could all just be dark in there. You might not even have like a glimmer of a flame that's letting you trust that things might get better. Exactly. And, and, and on top of that, fear itself, this sympathetic activity inhibits change. It gives us tunnel vision, right? It prevents us from seeing the forest through the trees. And, and so I think what's really, um, and, and your story is, is so important because this is again, what so many people go through and, and most people, uh, don't have the force of will to take themselves through to that four years to the end of the, of the road. And they oftentimes relapse or they, you know, there's a lot of bumps along the way. 
And, and that's normal and it's no one's fault. It just is the way that it is because these things are hard to learn. These techniques take a lot of practice. Um, I think what I've seen in people who have these conditions is that there's another way to learn for the body, which is called bottom up. So we talk about, you know, uh, you know, um, Bessel van der Kolk talks about you know, the body keeps the score. Um, and Joe Dispenza, I think, talks a lot about how the body stores memory of experiences. And, you know, it, it may be in the epigenet epigenetic code. It may be somewhere else. I think it's probably, he's probably right about the epigenetic code being a core storage space. But it's also in the neurons themselves and the neural networks and the way that those neurons connect to our bodies. And the reason those connections are so strong is because we've trained them over time, not necessarily on purpose, but they've been practiced in that state over and over and over again. So what some techniques that we can use are evolutionary techniques that really radically convey safety to the body first, like touch, right? Like soothing music. Um, like soothing touch is a particularly interesting one because it doesn't require any effort on the client, on the user, right? You can, somebody, when you're having a bad day and somebody you love gives you a nice hug or holds your hand, you instantly feel better. And you don't have to really think about it. You just instantly feel better because that hug or that, or that touch sends a signal to our brains that says, if I have time to pay attention to the feeling of someone touching me in a nice way right now, and to have joy from that, then I can't possibly be running from a lion in this moment, right? Because if I was, I wouldn't have time to pay attention to that feeling. And so even if it's a subconscious response, the body instantly does a little balancing act, right? And the more that you experience those kinds of feelings, whether it's soothing music or soothing ambiance or soothing touch, um, when we're in this uh, imbalanced state, the more often that brings us back into balance. The problem is you can't always have somebody with you touching you all the time whenever you're stressed out or inflamed or whatever it is. And you can't always be listening to music all the time. So my re part of my research at the University of Pittsburgh was looking at um, why people typically don't respond. What's this what is going on with this imbalance in the nervous system? What kinds of things reverse the balance? And then could we develop a technology that was wearable that like this that could um, send a signal to the body through the skin that basically reminded the body that it was safe, just like human touch, not a replacement for human touch, but stimulating a sim the same pathway that the, when the body and the mind feels this feeling of a gentle ocean wave type feeling on your arm or your leg, um, that it instantly reminds us that we're, if we can pay attention to this feeling right now, we must be safe enough to pay attention to this feeling so that we have the time to pay attention to the feeling so we can't be running from a lion. We can't be in an immediate threat. And so that in and of itself, actually we showed in, in double-blind randomized placebo-controlled trial in 2017 that this reliably improves these measures of imbalance in the nervous system. So when people are stressed out, the sympathetic comes down, the parasympathetic comes up. And we see improved cognition, um, improved cognitive performance under stress, improved uh, sleep, improved um, recovery. And we see people just saying that they feel better within a couple minutes. And the body's signs, you know, like the heart rate and the heart rate variability all show this respectively, which is really interesting. Um, and so that was that that technology Apollo was what came out of that research, um, which was basically to try to originally help our patients who had lost hope and had nothing, no other options. Um, and it was something we could send them home with and 
you know, unusually are in research, you know, your theories don't always pan out in the real world, but we were very lucky and we did very diligent research and reviewed an enormous amount of papers and did an enormous amount of experimentation. And it really paid off because the, when we made the technology and brought it to the real world, people were actually experiencing the same things in the real world that we saw in the lab, which was incredible. Um, and so now Apollo is available. Amazing. People so people can actually buy it. Yep. And is that the groovy little thing you just showed me on your wrist there? Yeah, this is it. Super um, cool. So you can wear it on your wrist, your ankle. It has two buttons, no screen. Um, and it works with or without your phone. Um, and uh, I think, I don't know if I said it earlier, you can wear it on your wrist or your ankle. I personally prefer the ankle, but sometimes when I'm doing work, I wear it on my wrist. Um, it just depends on the situation. And it just emits a gentle vibration that kind of feels like an ocean wave or um, an animal purring on your body or like holding a baby or like somebody giving you a hug. Everybody has like a slightly different memory associated with it. But that feeling, again, just reminds us that we're safe when we're in a situation that's not actually a threat. Yeah. And then and helps does us it, to settle. Does it just kind of go off on its own? Does it sense that your heart rate's going up and so it kicks in? Like, how does it work? So at some point in the future, I and, and, and we have done this in this preliminary work, and it is possible to do that, um, but it's very difficult with the state of technology right now. So um, in time, that will happen, um, where it will start to detect for you when you're getting... Um, you know, having when, when you need it and turning on automatically. But right now it's self-directed. So you turn it on when you want, you turn it off when you are done. Um, and it has time programs. So programs run anywhere from five minutes to two hours. Um, and you say, you know, two hours would be what people often use for sleep and five minutes would be what people often use to wake up. And then you could do everything from um, energy boost to socializing to clear and focus to um, recovery post-workout or post-intense mental stress or emotional stress to uh, meditation enhancement to um, deep relaxation and then sleep. So it's, it's not a magic button that will put you into that state if you're trying to do something else. But if you're trying to work, if you're trying to focus, for example, or trying to sleep and your body is resisting or you have racing thoughts and you can't you can't, you know, dive in because there's a resistance barrier there. It helps just ease the transition from state A to state B. Right. And where does someone get something like this? I'm not trying to plug it on the show or anything, but you know, there might be people who are like, I need to, I need to try that. <laughs> For sure. Um, so you can go to our website, apolloneuro.com. It's A-P-O-L-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com or apolloneuroscience.com will also work. Um, and there's lots of information about um, how we develop the technology there and the science behind it. And, and also um, a lot of interesting information about how to stay healthy during stressful times like we're in right now with and without the technology. Because, you know, we really believe that um, as we work as a community to build and practice these resilience techniques, we not only help to heal ourselves, but we help to heal people around us by setting a much better example of health. And I think you know this firsthand. And I think that as we work together on this, it's really a community effort to try to help the world realize that we all have the ability to heal, right? No matter what anyone has told you, no matter what you've heard or seen, uh, what your role models, what you've witnessed from TV, we all have the ability to heal and we all have the ability to get better um, or be, or, or I should say, reach a, a, a more full state of ourselves. And this is just one of many tools that can help us get there.
Amazing. I'm so glad you created it. And it sounds like the next part of it is really uh, opening up the possibility of the AI component um, in terms of it talking to your body uh, independently when it knows, when it senses something's out. Right. And I think that's been something that's really popular in terms of the discussion of the future of medicine on the whole. The future of medicine has been talked about as personalized medicine for a long time, but it's really hard to personalize a pill. You know, it's really hard, other than dosage, it's very hard to personalize a medical treatment for people. And we've tried this for a long time and it's just it's not that practical. And part of the reason is because when we are told you have this illness, take this pill or take all of these pills one or multiple times a day, effectively what you're telling somebody is that you need to take this thing to feel better. And if you stop taking it, you're not going to feel better anymore. Um, this is really specifically for chronic illness, acute illness, acute illness like infections and things of that nature. We you know, we need antibiotics, we need things to help save us uh, when we're really dying or in a very severely ill situation. But with chronic illness, taking a pill every day, in some ways is very disempowering for people. And so having something on your body that reminds you that you can feel better without taking a medicine is actually, you know, very nice because it helps people feel more autonomous and more in the control of their own lives. Well, you're pressing the button right now as well. So there's an, there's a nice um, empowering moment in that. And so devil's advocate question though, is I need the band to feel better. Like what, what happens when we start feeling like everything is a connection that is an external influence to our inner healing um, how do we start really believing that our inner selves can do the healing? And is that where, is this a, a potential segue where we talk about the microdosing of psychedelics and the research you've done there to really create long-term, I'm done, I'm, I'm well. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's that what a lot of, and I'm also, a, I'm also an MDMA trained psychotherapist and a ketamine trained psychotherapist. And I think that, you know, a lot of what I learned from, working with people in those settings and, and studying that medicine has really helped to develop Apollo because um, the way that those medicines work is a different paradigm than what typical Western medicine. Typical Western medicine is again, take one or for chronic illness anyway, it's take one or multiple pills, one or multiple times a day indefinitely. And psychedelic medicine is take one to three to six doses over a year with intensive psychotherapy, which is the mental work, the practice work without medicine involved and learn how to heal yourself, right? That, and then the, and then we do, and then eventually we learn how to heal ourselves with these medicines as tools. And so effectively it's looking at the medicine and understanding the medicine as a tool that helps teach us how to heal ourselves, not that heals us for us if that makes sense. So the locus of control gets restored back to the self. And actually when, and I think that that's the same with deep breathing and meditation technique and yoga. So when we, when we understand why those techniques are interesting, they're interesting because when you take a deep breath intentionally, what you're doing is you're pulling air from the outside into your body, which is something that we all have control over at any moment, the speed and the rate and the depth with which we breathe. And when we do that, we instantly remind ourselves that if we have the time to pay attention to this breath, then we are clearly safe enough to pay attention to this breath and that we're not, again, an immediate survival threat. And every time we repeat that process, every time we do that breath process again, it 
retrain it's retraining and, and practicing that cycle again that gets easier every time and it's actually the same with apollo so and and, again, and i'm really glad you asked this question because i'm also I'm, i also my, my major practices in psychiatry is addiction and so i really wanted to make sure we made a technology that was not addictive and so we were we were looking at how people use it and when people started using it they use it a hell of a lot but what's interesting is that over time they actually still they still use it but they don't use it as frequently they use it more intentionally. So um, people actually notice and have reported to us that they get the same effects more quickly and they're more sensitive to it so they don't need to use it as often after they use it for a long time because they feel that their bodies are actually more easily able to access these states of, of balance on their own, which is the exact goal of meditation and deep breathing. Right, so in in some sense, the Apollo is kind of like a training tool, as much as it is a a therapeutic. It's also a training tool to help us learn how to feel safe in situations that were previously threatening to us before, and then shows us that we are in control of that. Whether it's you know temporarily through the use of the buttons on the device, or whether it's through our own breath work, because when you breathe with Apollo, it actually works even better, right? And so it helps it helps nudge us into those states of of mindful presentness that really accelerate or catalyze the healing process. Mm, and that's what so, psychedelics do as well. Yeah. And so it's almost like you feel that little wave of the vibration and it's triggering you to start healing yourself is what you're basically saying. Exactly. So, yeah, because, so good. Right. Like our, our mind and what, this is one of the things I like to, to talk to my clients about a lot is our minds can be anywhere, right? Our minds can be in the past. They can be in the present. They can be in the future. And if we don't pay attention, we're usually in the past or the future. We're not typically very focused on the present. And so what we forget though, is that our bodies are always in the present. Our bodies are not thinking about all this other stuff. Our bodies are always in the present. So when you do any technique of self-touch or any technique of like tapping as an example, um, or Apollo or anything like that, breath, breathing, all of these techniques ground us back into the body, which automatically brings us back into the present. So, so that is sort of the, East, the Eastern Western medicine sort of interfaces right along the lines of that mindful presentness, which is that balancing of the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system. All about that generous, present, calm moment. Yeah, the more we can access that, the better. That's, um, that's really cool. So um, I do want to talk about psychedelics and microdosing a little bit more because I think um, we just had David Brunner on the show a couple of months ago. I know he's, I think he's on the maps. Um, he has a lot to do. You guys were going to have a conference here in Australia this year and Unfortunately, that's obviously not going ahead, but um, he's very excited about this, uh, this form of treatment and um, having used it himself, obviously had a huge um, benefit from it and seen in so many people in the preliminary trials. Um, why do you think it, there's such a stigma around it? I think Michael Pollan's book helped kind of break open the topic a little bit more and get us talking about it in mainstream context, but... What have you seen in clinical circles where people might just want to stick to the pills that they've always had and the treatments they've always used? Um, what do you think is going to shake that up a little bit? That's a, that's a very good question. I think there's a lot of misinformation out there. And I think a lot of it came about around the time, you know, of the Vietnam War where there was a big anti-war movement. And, you know, the anti-war movement was associated with 
all of these young people getting he's high. getting high yeah <laughs> right and i and i think that those unfortunately were conflated um because they were in some ways related but in other ways not really and i think the main purpose of them and, and also we rushed you know the there was an opportunity when you know and i think a lot of people forget that in the 50s 60s and 70s many of the medicines that we talk about using like lsd psilocybin um mdma these medicines were being studied at very uh, esteemed institutions like Harvard and, and MIT wow. and Johns Hopkins. What, what happened? What went wrong? I, I think that, you know, we as a scientific community were a bit impatient with the process of the development of these drugs because we, there were many people who saw the current state of the world in jeopardy, right? They saw that the safety of the world, the future of the world was in jeopardy. And in seeing that, they said, well, I think, and, and this is, again, this is just my theory, but, you know, I think there's a lot of people who talk about this and, and, and everybody kind of has a different say, but I think that, you know, impatience was really the issue because they saw this threat. They saw the uh, world in jeopardy with all the wars going on and all the, you know, the seemingly sense, nonsensical killing and they thought, well, you know what, if we just leak this out to the world and everybody has access to it, then everybody will realize that they don't need to do any of this nasty stuff anymore, right? And, and I think it was a very idealistic approach and it was, I think, very heartfelt and very, and they meant well, everyone meant well, um, but it unfortunately, unfortunately, I think people forgot about the importance of scientific rigor and the importance of safety, right? And these medicines are not without risk. You know, LSD is very uh, intense of an experience for people and you can have just as intense of an experience as you can have a traumatizing experience with things like LSD or mescaline or psilocybin if you're not careful. And so, and, and now we've seen that unfortunately happen to people and it's not common, but it does happen. And I think what MAPS and Rick Doblin and, and uh, you know, thanks to donors like David Bronner and, and many others who have helped make, move this uh, movement forward is that, you know, Rick has really focused on prioritizing patients and scientific, uh, rigorous scientific studies that focus on safety first, right? Harm reduction first. And if we can take people who are diagnosed, for example, as treatment resistant and help get them safely in through a very practical and careful practice of psychedelic medicine to a point where they're no longer suffering symptoms for years after just a few doses of medicine, then we can show that without a doubt, these medicines work better than anything else out there and it will get approved. But that is the way that we have to do this because if, and it's slow. And Rick's been doing it for like 35 years, you know, so since 1985. So, you know, I think he's really played the long game, but that long game is critical because, and I think we all need to recognize that as scientists and, and doctors and in the general public as well, that we really need that science to, to come along with this. We need education. We need to educate people so they don't hurt themselves, you know, and, and we don't hurt each other. Um, and I think microdosing is a really interesting um, example of that because most of the research that I've done and that I think has been done in the literature is on macrodosing, which is taking full doses that are very dissociative and, and very intense experiences that require guidance from a therapist. Microdosing typically is not thought of as something that requires guidance from a therapist. 
Um, it's something that you take a little bit of a dose and then you go out and go about your day. Um, kind of more in the same frame as a, as a regular Western medicine. You dose every couple days or every three days. But I think there's also a lot of misinformation about this as well out there. And, and there's a lot of reports, I will say, there's a lot of subjective reports. This is extremely effective. And I'm working with a couple different groups to study this now. But we just, you know, there's a lot of misinformation. And so people take, well, microdose, they'll take too much, right? They'll, they'll, they think they're microdosing, but they're actually taking a fairly hefty dose. And then they'll go and drive or go do something that they shouldn't do. And that puts them and other people at risk. So, so I think that, you know, we, as powerful and incredible as these medicines are, we always have to remember to be careful so that we don't have a recap of our 60s and 70s situation yeah. and then and resulting in a banning of these and powerful yeah. I, I'd imagine it would be tricky because we've been trained to believe more is more, right? As a culture, more is more. We supersize everything. We double down on everything. We uh, double up on everything. And uh, this type of medicine is, in fact, it seems the opposite. Less is more. And in fact, in life, it seems that emerging is the theme that less is more is generally a better way to live. So, um, so can you explain uh, how, in fact, one might be healed from these sorts of medicines? What happens in the brain that is actually creating and producing a lasting healing effect? So you remember we were talking about earlier about um, this practice makes perfect model that Eric Kandel discovered. And, um, and so if you think about it, when we are in our in our uh, we can just say a state of suffering, whatever that may be. Um, the brain is attached. It, the brain creates these loops patterns that is an, is a, what's called a neural network. And the neural network, when we're in our normal day-to-day -day state, um, that's consistent with our, our sense of self, our ego, our identity, our, uh, and the defenses around our identity and the way that we see the world. That is called the default mode network. Um, it's effectively the name of what's running in the background in our brain and how our brain talks to other parts of the brain and the body when we are in our normal everyday state um, at rest. And so this part of the brain gets stronger and stronger and stronger as we do things that reinforce our sense of self, our sense of identity, our sense of ego. Um, ego as separate from the outside world. Um, and... So what's interesting is that when we take one of these medicines and, and, and so taking a step back, I think what, you know, going back to what we were talking about very early in the conversation about, you know, a diagnosis being harmful, right? So as an example, I, I say I'm feeling sad and I go to a doctor and I felt sad for six months on and off and a doctor talks to me for 15 minutes and then sends me out with a prescription for an antidepressant and says, you have clinical depression, major depression, right? And so then I start connecting in this default mode network and my sense of self, I start connecting my sense of self to the depression. And I say, I now have been diagnosed with depression, so I am depressed, Yeah, right? I am and a so, sad person, not exactly. I experience sadness. Exactly, not saying I, and we haven't been taught to how to use the words properly most of the time. So instead of saying, I feel sad or I feel depressed, which is talking about right now, 
it's we we are we say I am this, and that and means, we use the possessive as well. I I have anxiety or my anxiety, and I feel that's not helpful, right? For it, no, definitely not. And what and it's and it's actually destructive. It, it literally associates our identity, our sense of self, which is usually very intact now, with something that is a chronic illness. And so now the illness, instead of being something that is overcomable is something that becomes literally enmeshed with ourselves. And so that becomes part of this neural network loop called the default mode network. And so what psychedelic medicines do and what meditation practice does and, and what, what likely Apollo is doing is that by boosting activity in the safety pathway of the brain through practice or through with psychedelics biochemical or with um, touch or Apollo with touch, um, what happens is you see a decrease in the default mode network and the brain is still active. The brain is actually maybe more active than it is normally, but it's talking to other parts of the brain differently. It's like if you ski or snowboard, it's like being up on the top of a mountain and going down the same track every time, the same path every time. And then one time you go up and there's eight feet of fresh powder dropped on top of you and you have anywhere you can go, right? There's no pre-made choices for you. It's literally open trail, open, you choose in that moment where you go. And all of a sudden you have the opportunity to make new connections between your sense of self and everything else that you perceive to be part of your sense of self that you now can start to take a step back and say, wait a minute, here is my sense of self. All of this other stuff is just temporarily modifying my sense of self. It's not actually me. These emotions are not me, they're signals to me about what's going on in the world, right? And so as you start, as we start to recognize these relationships through um, these psychedelic or really just um, altered state experiences, and again, they don't have to come from psychedelic uh, medicine, they can come from meditation or other, uh, or lots of other things, massage or yoga or anything, any of these things. Um, as we practice those, those practices, we train our default mode network, this neural network that's associated with our identity to literally detach itself from these words like depression, anxiety, trauma, PTSD, sadness, all these things that we started to latch onto that became for whatever reason, because we watched it, we were told it, whatever. Um, our parents did it, you know, any number of reasons. We start to really understand that there is a separation and then we rebuild our sense of meaning and how we build meaning for ourselves as a result. And then that eventually, and then it, that's not the end though. That's just the beginning. That disruption in that network is the start. And then once we realize that disruption, we have that disruptive moment where that network is, you know, sort of suppressed for a while and we can see, remember what our true self is, which is often referred to as child's eyes. It's like seeing yourself again as you were as a child. It gives you an opportunity to recognize what skills we have to practice when we're sober. After this experience is over, what skills do we have to practice to maintain this on a regular basis? And that's what we call integration. So that's where the real work comes in. Mm -hmm. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. Absolutely. And, and so I'm curious, how do you choose which one for which person? Is there enough showing up in the science to go, ah, it's going to be LSD for this woman or ah, it's going to be psilocybin for this young guy like how does the the diagnosing of um the the treatment come about that's a really great question and i think in the 60s and 70s we had more of an opportunity to make those choices um at this point it's really based on legality so 
Um, what I can tell you is that for most people these days, we typically recommend if somebody is a good candidate for one of these treatments and they have, you know, they've had depression or PTSD or any mental illness like this that involves some kind of traumatic event, which many mental illnesses do, or, or in some cases, many traumatic events, and they have not gotten better with other attempts, other treatment attempts, which is a big thing, then we will often usually start with ketamine, uh, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, which is actually really interesting, I think, because that we're talking about it, because I think ketamine is a very big drug of abuse in Australia. Um, mm, massive, it, yeah. Yeah, and I, I've heard that in some places it's actually illegal, but um, it's a very, very powerful psychedelic medicine that only has a 30 to 60 minute peak. And so you can, and so it's very, very safe and it's been used for, and it's, it's legal in almost, it's legal in every state and almost every country in the world. And so be, because it's so legal, um, it is very, very easy for us to deliver to people and make it accessible and cheap, cheaper to access. Um, MDMA, and, and it's also very gentle. It's a very gentle, it tends to be a very gentle experience. And so typically when we start out with people who have never had one of these experiences before, we, all, we usually want to start with something more gentle um, and not something that's going to totally make you feel like you died and then re were reborn. You know, that, that, that's not usually where we want to start with people because it's just too much, it's too intense. It's too, too much of a break from reality as it were. Yeah. Um, and, so and the patient we, would yeah. be in such a fragile state to be coming to you for the therapy in the first place. Right. Exactly. <laughs> let's just break it all open, <laughs> wide open. And no, that, that could send them running. Right. Exactly. And so we really want to take it easy on people. And we usually start with a lower dose at first, and then we gradually work our way up. And it's a very carefully curated setting, you know, where we have a several, you know, usually one to several sessions in advance where we prepare them for what they're going to experience and give them a lot of reading material about what they're going to experience. And we practice breath work and meditation beforehand, and then uh, teach them some of these basic techniques. And then they go into the experience that we very carefully curate and make sure that they feel safe and comfortable um, starting out usually lower dose first, and then we do a lot of uh, integration therapy afterwards to help uh, remind them to practice and give them the tools to practice what they learn during the experience. Um, typically, I think what we usually recommend first for people is ketamine and MDMA, because these are just happen to be two of the most gentle psychedelic medicines. Um, but there are people who do things like psilocybin first and and uh, LSD isn't really studied that much anymore, unfortunately, because of what uh, a lot of the studies were done by the CIA and it kind of um, disrupted people's view of that medicine, but it's incredibly powerful medicine and I think will come back eventually. But I think right now the major ones um, that we start with for most people are, still, are um, ketamine and MDMA. Mm. And um, in terms of, uh, what am I trying to say? Um, Oh, I lost my train of thought. I'm going to have to cut this little bit out. Damn. Um, I had a question around. Oh, yeah. I wanted to ask you. Um, here we go. Sorry. I could do a little break so the producer can cut it. And so, Dave, can you think about a person that you've treated, obviously anonymously, or maybe two different types of situations, just so it can bring to life? what this has uh, this form of therapy has been able to help them achieve in their lives and um, and take that empowerment back sure yeah and I think um, 
yeah, there's been a number of people who have had very substantial, what we call transformative experiences. Um, I think, and, and again, I, I want to emphasize these experiences do not require by any means psychedelic medicines, but the psychedelic medicine serves as a, as a tool that catalyzes the experience and helps uh, accelerate the, the transformation process. Um, I think some of the major uh, changes that I've seen are in people with, with tr very severe trauma and PTSD, people who you know, can't sleep, can't focus, can't work, um, they're tired all the time and they're so, uh, they're like afraid to leave the house because they're afraid that if they leave the house, they could have a panic attack or a flashback or something that would embarrass them in front of their friends or family uh, or their coworkers. And so they literally just wind up spending years isolating. Um, and it just makes it worse because they're avoiding the things that they really need to work through to uh, overcome the, the trauma. And so we've seen some of these, some people who have had these kinds of experiences that are this, this unwell for years, um, sometimes up to 17 years. Um, and they will have, you know, just three doses of MDMA split over two weeks, with two weeks in between, 12 weeks total psych, uh, therapy session, which is what uh, the MAPS protocol. And uh, two months out, over 50% of these people are no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD. And, and it's incredible. And you start to see, even after, it's, even after the first session, you start to see the incredible, like these incredible changes happen, like their facial expressions change. Like they start to, their face goes from having, you know, lots of forehead crinkles and, and, and always like, looking down, not making eye contact to always making eye contact and, you know, smiling and, and being looking bright rather than gray, you know, and these like in just incredible changes and in having energy and getting jobs and having kids and, and just literally changing their entire lives. And I think what's, even, what's the most interesting about these medicines, just to give, throw some statistics in here that I think are really incredible because I can talk about my own experiences I've seen all day and, and, and they're great. But I think when you really look at the statistics, we, we see that, you know, after two months out about 50 something percent of people after three, only three doses of MDMA are no longer meeting diagnostic criteria for PTSD. But then you look at 12 to five, 12 months out to five years out, that number goes up to 67% without any further treatment. So people are learning so much from these treatments in just 12 weeks with only three medication sessions, that after that, they are actually continuing to take those teachings and make themselves better. So it's almost right? like they're rewiring their neurons to fire exactly a different it. way. Yeah. That's exactly it. They're rebalancing that, that nervous system to bring the sympathetic down and the parasympathetic up for a short amount of time. And then they learn how to do that on their own on a continuous basis. And that's what creates and facilitates this learning process and this building of new neural networks that results in true healing. And it's incredible. And we see the same thing with ketamine. And I've seen people, you know, who are constantly anxious or um, just constantly, you know, I think ruminating is one of the more common things like negative intrusive thoughts over and over and over again, they can't stop. And, you know, you give them a dose of ketamine and within an hour, they're bright. You know, and they're, they, they, it's like they've seen, they've like, um, it's like they've looked in the mirror again and seen themselves as a child and, and just instantly remembered 
what it was like to see the world and to see themselves before any of that bad stuff had happened, you know? And that's, and that's really, I think the crux of it is being able to be reminded of that, be reminded of feeling safe when we might not have felt safe for decades, um, being reminded of being able to feel in control when we haven't felt in control for decades. Those are the kinds of powerful feelings that when you feel it, you want it and you want it all the time, but you can't have it through the medicine because if you take the medicine more than one day in a row, it doesn't work. So you have to learn how to do it on your own. And, that's, and that is the path that is really successful for the most people. And the MAPS protocol that you talked about with the 12 sessions, uh, I'm, I'm just sort of thinking duty of care here, making sure that people don't feel like they can just hit the street corner and buy some drugs and, and sort themselves out. That's absolutely not what we're saying. Um, how does the, the function of the, the sessions with a trained practitioner um, work and how prevalent is access to this treatment around the world right now? So it's very difficult to access right now because the medicine is still illegal pretty much everywhere. And it's the same with psilocybin. That's why ketamine is so interesting because ketamine is legal. So, but, the, but I think it's very important, as you mentioned, that um, you can't, you know, if you just take the, the way we do these sessions is very carefully constructed and carefully planned. And people are, you know, the session for MDMA, as an example, is eight hours long with two therapists in a very comfortable space with comfort with comfortable soothing music and lots of things available eight hours wow eight hours yeah it's a huge and there's and there's actually three sessions 12 weeks of treatment but three dosing sessions um so yeah it's, it's a lot of effort on on everyone's part the client and and the therapist it's an incredible amount of effort um and so you know it's important to note that the reason why people have these dramatic experiences is in, in terms of you know transformative healing is because they are having the medicine in a therapeutic context. If we know that you know people, I don't know if you if you know the statistic, but in the in the U.S., I think the number is that there's um, roughly a million new users of MDMA every year. Wow! How many of these people are having transformative healing experiences that get the results that we're seeing in the trials? Almost none of them. Okay. Right. Very important. Yeah. Very important. So part of the, and, and, and some of them do have very powerful he healing experiences, but then they don't do the integration practice afterwards and the uh, benefits fade away. And so I think that, you know, what we talk about in the MAPS training and the ketamine trainings and all this work around psychedelics, that's critically important is the set and the setting, the mindset and the physical setting that we're in has to be safe. And we have to be Put in, we have to put in the preparation, the intention to heal, right? The, not the intention to have a crazy escapist party, but the intention to literally focus on healing ourselves, whatever that might be, whatever comes up, and then to continue that afterwards. And if we do that, you know, in the right context, we can have radical healing and transformative healing experiences. But if we don't, then we can put ourselves at great risk. So it's very, very important to remember that, um, you know, curating these uh, these healing situations very carefully is probably even more important than the drug itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The drug is, yeah, it, it sounds to me that the eight hours with two practitioners, there would be a heck of a lot of work that's gone into mapping out what that eight hour journey looks like. And then what the follow-up sessions look like to enable people with their, um, 
disturbed synapses, if you like, by the medication session to then actually start rebuilding in the productive way that's going to allow them to heal. Does that sound like I understand what's going on? Okay, cool. Um, and I feel like we've talked about it really responsibly in the way that we're not going to have people hitting their street corner dodgy drug dealer who's mixed all sorts of terrible things in with that as well. And it's an extremely risky process. So please speak to the people who locally may be able to help you with this and we'll leave that there. So the last thing I want to talk to you about is the Board of Medicine. Uh, now, um, that sounds like something that's been around for yonks, but it isn't, in fact. And it's, it's something that you have uh, created to bring um, formal peer-reviewed research accepted by doctors at, for complementary treatment supplements and herbs. Um, uh, so this to me sounds like exactly what we need to be doing because as someone who has had two major roadblocks in, uh, allopathic, uh, channels that really did have to go and explore things over the years, um, in unconventional ways, it blows my mind that these incredible therapies are still trying to be shut up when really we should just be embracing everything that works for people. Uh, it, it frustrates me uh, and it kind of really just makes me sad when something works and it gets shunned. It's like, but it, it, it's working. You know, how are you going to, with this, um, with this body of people bringing these people together and the research together, how do you hope that this Board of Medicine uh, changes that? Because it sounds like that's what your objective is. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I, I share your frustration. I mean, I think that, you know, as we see, as I mentioned earlier, you know, as a psychiatrist, we treat a lot of people who don't get better by the book. And this is very frustrating because as care providers and doctors, we're not trained to deal with futility very well. So when we're faced... <laughs> we're faced with doing the same thing over and over and over again, and it's not working, you know, we get really frustrated and burnt out. And that is not something that our system can sustain. And we, frankly, as clinical providers, whether you're a nurse or a doctor or, or any kind of care provider or therapist, we deserve better than that. We deserve an opportunity to, you, you know, attempt treatments that are maybe outside of the box, but may have a low risk and be able to still help. And, and I, I would imagine that the what you just spoke about there with treating a patient over and over again and seeing no result would contribute to potential mental illness issues in doctors. I mean, your right, profession absolutely. is one of the highest suicide professions, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And and we see this all the time and I and I think that and and that's why the W the World Health Organization announced in 2019 that that burnout is uh, uh, is a really critical issue, not just for, for not just for doctors and healthcare providers, but for everyone that we need to actually focus on and deal with now. Um, but I think in doctors in, in particular and healthcare providers, it's very, it's much higher than in other groups because of the stress we're under. You know, I could, I could, if I have a full day of patients, I could be sitting with people, you know, several people a day. And, and I would say half of them are telling me absolutely horrendous things that, I have to then figure out a way to deal with on my own and not take in, take to heart, you know? And oftentimes we're not trained to do that. So we have to figure it out on our own. And the hope is we can help these people feel better, but that's not always the case. And 
And so I think, you know, again, this forces us similar to what pushed me to develop Apollo, which is a risk-free way for people to access altered states of healing um, and empowerment without drugs. There's also a lot of medicines out there that were in a lot of cases, the origin of Western medicine. Uh, most people forget that a lot of our Western medicines actually come from plants and come from the Amazon, Amazonian tribal culture and from Chinese medicine. And, um, and that, that they heavily influence each other. And we are ignorant if we do not acknowledge the history and the, and the importance of that history. And so I basically, over the course of the last several years, I interviewed about 400, maybe a little more than 400 doctors and uh, care providers. And I would always ask them, you know, why are you not recommending things like cannabis products or things that are known to be safer than opioid narcotics, right? We know we have an opioid epidemic. We know this, this, these drugs are killing people when they're being used chronically over time. Um, and many, many, many people, and that none of us have been untouched by it. And yet we still continue to prescribe. And they say overwhelmingly over and over and over again, they say, we don't, we don't recommend alternatives because we don't have the guidance. We don't, we, we don't want the liability, right? Um, if they're, and, and what I realized is, you know, when you ask them, well, what would help you make those decisions more effectively? And they say, well, we want to prescribe these things. We want to recommend them, but we don't have the time to review all the literature. We don't have time to take on the, or the risk to take on the liability of using this as a medicine when we don't know, and it's just not worth it. So I'm going to use what my book tells me to do. And frankly, can you blame them? I don't know. I mean, no, you can't. It's hard. It's hard. Well, they're seeing people 15 minutes at a time, back to back, from right. 7.30 in the morning till 6 p.m. Right. And in, a lot of, and in a lot of cases, you know, especially with primary care in the States, like not getting paid well for it. And, you know, and we're in a lot of debt. Uh, and so um, what we decided was after talking to all of these doctors and care providers, we said, okay, if what people want is guidelines, then let's make the guidelines. Let's put together a group of experts, which many of whom were taken from that group of 400 people. Um, and let's put together a group of experts that actually goes through all the literature for everyone and puts together the clinical guidelines, starting with tackling the opioid crisis and says, okay, if you want to help take somebody down off of their dose of opioids or, or, or not give them opioids in the first place, then you can try X, Y, and Z techniques that have a, almost no risk and um, are not addictive. And these are things that you can access over the counter that are cheap or, or free even that are available to use. And they don't require, they don't require a prescription. And so we're started with things like cannabidiol, which was actually written about in a um, very important publication by Yasmin Hurd in uh, 2017. It was published in Cell Press as an editorial that basically said, if we are, and this really impacted me when I saw this, it said, if we are not looking at cannabidiol, given the state of the, of the opioid crisis in the world right now, if we're not looking at cannabidiol critically as medical professionals, then we are being doing a disservice to, to the public. You know, We really need to be looking at this and we really need to be evaluating it and advocating for it. And I didn't, and I, and I saw that article and I was like, all right, we're going to see some change. And I didn't see any change. Uh, and that but do you think that part of that is because of the residual uh, energy around the war on drugs movement? And so anything that even resembles a hemp leaf is like, no, that's, you know, that's the war on drugs, that's junkies, that's, um, but it seems to me like we need to pick a war on a few of the pharmaceuticals that have horrifically uh, 
impacted so many communities. I mean, you see some of the stories of whole towns who have opioid uh, crises, uh, which affects economy, health, marriages, reproduction of healthy children. I mean, like, why? where's the war on that? I, I mean, I think it's gradually happening. I mean, there's been, you know, multi-billion dollar lawsuits that have come up this year and last year. And I don't, th I don't, I agree with you. I don't think it's getting as much attention as it deserves. Um, but that's why we created the Board of Medicine um, to basically say, hey guys, as a medical community, we need to be focusing on harm reduction first, safety first. And the Hippocratic, the Hippocratic Oath in and of itself, it says first, first do, do no, no harm. harm. Yep. And, and so that is the tenet by which we approach medicine. And all of us on the board all agree. And I think most physicians, when you really ask them, will agree with that as the first thing, even if they don't practice it, they actually agree with it and it helps us reflect on our practice. And so we are creating clinical guidelines to help use natural medicines to taper off of opioids and reduce the opioid burden. Um, and that's really the first step we feel to guiding the public and guiding physicians from, if you educate, and, and, and the reason why I should say, the reason why we chose a nonprofit 501c3 medical board in the, in the United States is because I'm not sure how this works in Australia, but in the U.S., the medical board is the deciding body of a group of experts that actually changes medical policy. It changes the way that we practice. And the way that doctors practice and the way the decisions that doctors make effectively impacts the way that medicine is delivered, not only on a one-on-one -on -one basis, but also on a public health basis. And it changes public priorities. And so I saw this and I saw this, me this mechanism and I said, you know what? Is the board of medicine.org available? It is. Let's buy it. <laughs> and so we bought it, it and we just, yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't believe it to That's be honest. Crazy. We bought it. Yeah. Yeah. And we bought it and we, and we filed and, and for a, uh, for corporate status and we got it. And then we said, you know what, we're actually going to do this. And we built the critical mass of people as you'll see at, at the board of medicine.org. Uh, and you can, you know, get in touch with us and, and we will be releasing over time um, guidelines about how to provide a better quality of care, not just to, to the public, but also to healthcare providers um, for credit so that they can train with us and we will teach them for credit, which they, we all have to get as annual certification anyway, um, to keep up our license. Now you can get training from us that will give you the credentials to, to literally provide better healthcare using complementary and alternative medicines. Fantastic. That is so exciting. And I, I feel like something that's really missing, and we've seen this as the pandemic advice uh, that we've been given over and over at Shelter in Place, basically the message is to hide. And of course, there's validity in that because it cuts transmission straight away and it helps us uh, look after our burdened healthcare systems. And I, I fully understand and support isolation, social distancing myself. But what's lacking for me is, okay, how do we build health? How do we build it on a global scale? How do we raise the key metrics of nutrients in our blood tests that get us to optimal rather than normal so that we are more and more resilient in the face of threats? Is that part of the work you guys are going to be doing as well? That's the core of it. Brilliant. That's that's Very absolutely exciting. the core of it. And that and, and that's really this just this alignment around preventative care through resilience training. 
right? If we make ourselves more resilient by practicing, starting with the things we can do for free, breath work, meditation, yoga, exercise, good nutrition, um, just which is really education, right? That we aim to make free to the public. If we, and, we, and we, of course, I should say, I'm very proud to say we have a nutritionist on our board because a lot of doctors do not have good nutrition training, myself included. And so um, maybe it might've had, I don't know, a combined total of four days of nutrition training in all of medical school. Isn't um, that crazy in a psychiatry med degree? Wow. I mean, I mean, it's, wow. it's, it's like that in, I mean, that was, that was in all medicine, all medicine, you know, some medical schools are better than others, but almost all medical schools in the U S deprioritize nutrition training. And it doesn't matter what specialty you're in and you have to seek it out on your own. And I think this is again, the, at the core of the problem that we're not teaching the people who are the decision makers about healthcare, how to deliver the, the real knowledge about what is the core of making us healthy. It's what you feed the body with right? It's what the body does on a regular basis. Sitting all day, for example, is not particularly healthy. So it's important for us to prioritize exercise, but we as doctors are not even taught to do this for ourselves a lot of the time. You know, we deprioritize our own health and we're not serving as the role models that we could, could be, which is the role models of health, you know, and that's, and that's hard and it's, and it's not fair to blame doctors, you know, it's not our fault. We're just doing the best we can, because, you know, to work within the system that we were given at the same time. I think we also ser serve in a unique role as elders in our community, as some of the most educated people in our communities who have the understanding of public health and epidemiology and also the oath, we've sworn an oath to do no harm right? That we sit in a very unique position to radically transform the healing of not just individuals, but also of the communities and our culture as a whole. And that's where I hope the 21st century of healing is going is towards this convergence of Eastern and Western medicine, where we're not just looking at the differences of, oh, I'm the Western medicine practitioner, I'm better than you, and I'm Eastern, I'm better than you. It's, it's not about that. It's about where do they meet in the middle? It's right? exhausting, isn't it? To I mean, it, it's kind of like a whole black and white culture. If we just keep at loggerheads with each other, no one's looking forward for the solutions that take us forward. We're all just too focused on being right. And that happens on both sides, you know, and I think we all need to listen to each other much better. Yeah, exactly. And we need to break down the silos. You know, we need to make sure that we are working together for the common goal, which is healing. The common goal is healing. Nobody wants another pandemic like this, right? So let's focus on the common goal of how do we work together to take the best of Eastern medicine, the best of plant and tribal medicine, and the best of Western medicine to really create a much whole, more whole picture of what it means to be healthy and then educate the community. And then the community will be able to take care of themselves more so that they won't be as so reliant on the hospitals. You know, They'll be more resistant to infection. You know, there is a reason why some people are dying of COVID and others are not. It's not by chance. It's, we see it in New York City that the most common risk factor is obesity. Why? Because obesity is one of the many signs that the body is out of balance, that the stress response system is out of balance and the body is inflamed and it's not responding as well to infection. And so all of the, but the, the hope is all of these things are under our control. All of these things are mitigatable risk factors. And we just need to focus on, as a community, providing education to help people get through this and understand you have control. We have control over our health.
Mm. So maybe while we're all sheltering in place, a little less sourdough and a few more yoga classes. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 or, I mean, yeah, and there's great yoga classes online, right? They're you can get amazing. them all for free. Yeah. Yeah. A little less alcohol, a little more push ups. Yeah. You, know, <laughs> you really know how to sell it, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I mean, you know, if, if we, if, uh, if we get fit during this time and we all emerge as, you know, mm. healthy, you know, specimens of humanity, then, you know, the good news is we'll be more attractive. We'll we feel will. Better. And we can avoid the second and third waves that everyone's so terrified about. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. A lot. And we'll feel better about ourselves mentally and physically. Yeah. There's a lot we can actually, you know, I know a lot of people resist the self imprint. Oh, it's like, oh, just tell me one more thing I have to try and do while I'm homeschooling my kids and working from home and everything. But it's the, I want to get it to a place for myself as well, where it becomes the default to care for self before all the things, because all the things happen easier if we get that first part right. Yeah. And I think that's, that's so important because it's not indulgent to take care of ourselves. It is not selfish to take care of ourselves. It's been, we've been taught that a lot of the time, but that couldn't be further from the truth. And when we actually realize how critical it is for us to care for ourselves and for us to show ourselves that love, that patience, that gratitude, and that forgiveness and compassion, ultimately, we are so much better to others. And we're actually able to show goodness and kindness and love to others in so much more effective ways. And then we attract more kindness to us. And it's just a cycle that continues to, to feed back in positive ways rather than negative ones. And so you know, practicing those, those positive techniques is so important and it's not selfish. It's literally the essence of being human. Mm. And what I love there is it feels like a little penny dropped even, um, even better for me is to, to understand that when we are in a stress state, we are more selfish. We're more self-contained. We're trying to get everything, you know, done and it's harder to look out and be kind and it would feel counterintuitive that spending time on yourself makes you less selfish to others. But because spending time looking after yourself raises the parasympathetic, drops the sympathetic into the background where it belongs for a rainy day when you might actually need it, then of course we're kinder and we're more empathetic and we're more compassionate. So go do your yoga class, everybody. And um, thank you so much, Dave, for joining us. That was an excellent chat. Um, really interesting to hear about the work you're doing. I can't wait to hear what the community thinks. And, uh, and I just want to thank you for being someone who didn't accept the status quo as the place that it had to end and that there was so much more to discover to help people move forward. So thank you. It's my pleasure. And I really appreciate that. And thank you so much for this amazing conversation. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at Lotox Life or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lowtoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low Tox Club for just $49 Australian 
per year, which is about 29.30 US, about 27 euro and about 25 pounds, you get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lowtoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.